coming up. But turn our hearts to God's Word this morning, Romans chapter 8. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking specifically at verses 8, or verses 6 through 8. And uh, I just want to read uh, the beginning of Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. So we can have it all in context. So you can follow along in your Bibles. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And uh, I want to ask, is Sam still here? Sam, Raj, come on. Or Bob, could you go over to the computer and just bring up uh, my message on there? It's, it's Romans 62. It's in the public folder under users. So sorry about that, Kyle. I didn't get him set for that. But this morning we want to look at understanding the unbelieving mind. Um, a lot of times people will ask who visit our church, they'll ask me this question. They'll say, why don't you give altar calls? The church I used to go to, they gave altar calls. Why don't you give altar calls? Don't you think that's important? Uh, And I usually answer that uh, a couple different ways. I say, first of all, we don't have an altar here. Number one, uh, that was Old Testament. Um, We no longer have an altar upon which we sacrifice anything because Christ was sacrificed for us. And last time I checked, the New Testament says when his sacrifice was over, when he was done on the cross, he uttered two words, three words, it is finished. And I think that it's important that we understand that we're no longer in the process of um, sacrificing for our sin. There's only one sacrifice that could ever forgive your sin. That's the sacrifice that was given through the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. So first of all, we don't have an altar here. Um, and they say, well, why don't you just invite people forward or to a prayer room or something and, and they can um, you know, invite Jesus into their heart and, and they can receive Jesus as their Savior and their, their Lord. Um, and a lot of times when you stop and you think about where this all came from, a lot of it was influenced uh, early on. You, you remember uh, watching Billy Graham Crusade. You can still watch him on, on television. He was a, a faithful preacher of the gospel. But the one thing he did was he always, as well as other popular evangelists, they would um, think if you don't give an altar call, somehow you haven't preached the gospel. And so he would always call people forward and they would play many, many, many verses of just as I am. And uh, people would go down and they would, quote, receive Christ at the altar. Um, 
I think, in short, the reason I don't give altar calls is because there's no biblical example or command for us to do so. Jesus never gave altar calls. Now, Billy Graham says, well, whoever Jesus called, he always called publicly. That's true. But he also didn't pull them aside and pray a little prayer with them and and do all that stuff that we do in the church today. And so I assume that Jesus and the apostles, as recorded in the Gospels and Acts, preached the gospel. So just because you don't give an altar call doesn't mean you don't preach the gospel. And oftentimes, people are called upon to repent and to believe in Christ. Um, And there's no indication, a lot of times, that they ever invited them to raise their hands or to get uh, out of their seats and come forward. Jesus never did that. I see that handout. You never see him doing that in the New Testament. Now, is that a method? Is that a way that people can make that profession of faith? Yes, it is. Just like you can give someone a track and they can come to Christ. Okay, all tracks are not bad. Um, tracks are, are good methods if it's a good, well-written track that has the true gospel there. It's not some, you know, pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff. But if it's, it has a true gospel, we can use that to further the gospel of Christ here on earth. And so the method of evangelism, really, of altar calls and all that, came about in the 19th, early 19th century. And it was really popularized by a well-known evangelist, Charles Finney. And uh, he held some very heretical views when it comes to theology uh, concerning the human nature and other things. Uh, Ian Murray, who's a, a wonderful writer, he wrote a book called Revival and Revivalism. It's published by Banner of Truth. And he says this regarding altar calls. He says, Nobody at first claimed to regard it as a means of conversion, but they soon But very soon and inevitably answering the call to the altar came to be confused with being converted. Now, we could probably go around the room. I'm not going to do this. But and you could raise your hands and say, oh, I got saved. I went forward and and got saved at an altar call. That, That may be well. That may be true. God can use a lot of different things. But he goes on and he shows in this book the damaging effects of what we call revivalism. Uh, the evangelistic method that emphasizes some external action that the sinner needs to do to be saved. Um, Gospel preaching that brings sinners to despair over their inability to do anything drives them to trust in Christ and in Christ alone. That may bring true revival in their heart. That may bring true transformation. But at the root of the problem, a lot of times, and the longer answer really why I don't do the altar call thing, is the biblical understanding of the spiritual condition of unbelievers. And we're going to talk about that today. And not only that, but the nature of true conversion. Charles Spurgeon, who was a wonderful preacher, he was used of God to bring thousands to genuine conversion through his preaching. And he understood this even early on in his ministry. In a sermon in 1860, when he was only 24, Spurgeon said that the doctrine which leads salvation up to something that man does exalts the flesh and dishonors God. He labeled that view 
the Arminian view. And he explained in his uh, tabernacle pulpit, uh, he basically says that what the Arminian wants to do is to arouse man's activity. What we want to do is to kill it once and for all. So he says the Arminian is all about you have to do something in order to be saved. And what Spurgeon is saying, no, we want you to understand that there's nothing you can do to be saved. That you are utterly lost, that you are ruined, that you are at the most disparaging point in life. And that you have to look upward to the Savior. That view, Arminianism, seeks to make the man stand up. Spurgeon says, we seek to bring the man down and make him feel that there he lies in the hand of God and that his business is to submit himself to God and cry aloud, cry aloud, Lord, save or we perish, like the man in the New Testament who beat his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He goes on, he says, We hold that man is never so near grace as when he begins to feel that he can do nothing at all. Isn't that so true? We try throughout life, through different religions, through different things in our lives, trying to be a good person, whatever it might be, to earn that grace to earn that better standing before our God. He goes on, he says, when he says, I can pray, I can believe, I can do this, I can do the other, that, that marks, those marks of self-sufficiency and arrogance are on his brow. He goes on to emphasize that you cannot be saved unless God saves you. It's kind of a simplistic thought, but you know what? The church has really lost that today. How many times have you heard people give their testimony? Yeah, and then I found God. Or I, I did this, or I did that, or I... And I understand what they're saying. But don't you think that goes to the heart of your salvation? And so he urges sinners not to come forward, but to look on their own prayers or their own faith, but to cry out to God to draw them to Christ by his grace. Only God can take away a sinner's heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh that loves him. And if anyone complains that he cannot repent or believe, this is what Spurgeon says, these two are gifts from God. Do you know that God has to grant you repentance? That's what Paul says. You can't just repent. It's not something you just wake up and say, I think I'm just going to repent today. Or I'm going to become a Christian today. No, it's a work of God. We could go around the room and share testimonies how many times we heard the gospel before we actually repented, actually before we re- believed in Christ, before we were transformed by God's glorious power. It probably wasn't the first time you heard the gospel. Only God can do that. We need to cry out to God 
to have mercy on us, to save us. Because salvation, from what I read in the scripture, is totally of the Lord. It's not from us. If it was, what would happen? We would boast. We'd be prideful in our salvation. We'd be prideful even about our own repentance and our own faith. Matter of fact, unfortunately, there's a lot of people in churches today that are very prideful. And they're no better off than those religious leaders in the days of Christ whom he condemned. See, the, the frequent emphasis on doing something or coming forward um, to receive Christ, what does that do? It promotes false conversions. It gives false assurances to those who did that. I'm sure there's some here in this room at one point answered an altar call, raised a hand, prayed a prayer, but they weren't converted. And only later on in their life they realized, wow, I'm not even saved. And God convicted their heart. We have to be mindful of the fact that that it's God who saves us. It's God who does that transforming work. And that affects the way that we live our Christian life. That affects the way that we evangelize. It affects the way we preach the word of God. I'm so thankful that, I mean, all my job is is to bring the food to the table. I don't need to cook the meal. I just bring God's food to the table. And I put it before you. And if you want to eat it, you eat it. If you don't, you don't. I I can't shove it down your throat. It's not going to work. And sometimes you bring a meal to the table and everybody goes, "Ah, that's not a good meal. I don't like what that verse says. That was convicting or that was this or that was that. And trust me, I know what you're talking about because I've gone through it the week before I bring it to you. (laughs) And it did its work in my heart. And sometimes I want to say, boy, why does that verse say that? It'd be so nice if it just said something else. A little nicer, if Paul could put it a little different way. It'd be a little easier to teach on. It'd be a little easier to accept. But see, we don't want to start messing with the meal. We don't want to start adding our own ingredients to the gospel so that it might taste a little better to those who've yet to receive it. That's when we get in trouble. But you can do all those things, raise your hand, pray a prayer, do anything you want. But you know what? That alone is not evidence that you have been saved. Paul makes it clear here in Romans chapter 8, the genuine result of being saved is that we walk according to the Spirit. That's what he says there in verse 4. That we're going to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. In verse 5, Paul sets forth the contrast, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, between those two groups. He says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on what? The things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on what? The things of the Spirit. When it says they're according to the flesh, it means to live under the dominion of the flesh, to obey whatever it dictates. It's to live with a self-centered focus, not a God-centered focus. It's just another way of saying here in verse 8, he says, 
such people are in the flesh. They, they live in the sphere of the flesh. They're still under the control of the flesh. They're in sin. Their sin has not been forgiven. Now, they may think they're very religious. They may come to church faithfully every week. They may even live pretty good lives. But that doesn't save you. One commentator calls this, calls the flesh, the life of the eye for itself. (laughs) See, those who are in the flesh set their minds on one thing, the flesh, me, myself, I, not on the things of the spirit. Here in verse 6, Paul explains, and this is kind of all review, that the reason those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh is because they're what? They're spiritually dead, it says. For the mind set on the flesh is what? Death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. A couple weeks ago, we looked. The mind set on the flesh is spiritually dead, and therefore it's an enemy of God because it does not and cannot submit to him or please him. We looked at three things, and this is all review. First of all, the mind... Set on the flesh is spiritually dead and headed toward eternal death because it's an enemy of God. We sang this morning, a friend of God. Well, that's someone who's been saved. That's someone who's been transformed. That's someone who's been forgiven. You cannot be a friend of God if you're still lost in your sin. It's impossible. And we looked at two points under that first point. The mind set on the flesh is spiritually dead and headed toward eternal spiritual death. There is a place called hell. It's very real. And it is for eternal condemnation of those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. Who have been saved by his glorious grace. To be spiritually dead simply means that, you know what? It's called the second death. You die physically, but then you die spiritually if you don't know Christ. And for all eternity, you live under the judgment of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 5, Paul says that we're all dead in our sins before God graciously wakes us up. He resurrects us. He saves us. And he gives us that new life. And some people... Don't like to hear that message. Spiritually dead people cannot understand the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes this, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he does not, he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Some of us went to this biblical counseling conference this past week, weekend, and the one thing that they were very clear with us is biblical counseling is counseling based upon the Word of God. But you have to understand, if your counselee is not converted, if your counselee is not a believer, they're not going to accept what you have to give them. They're not going to understand it because it's spiritually discerned. The first priority is to have them respond to the gospel. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, Paul writes this. In their case, the God of this world has, look, blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out, for it was God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, that's the natural condition of every person who is ever descended from Adam. They're fallen. They're spiritually dead. And then secondly, we looked at the mind of the flesh is not spiritually neutral. It's an enemy of God. You may think, oh, no, I'm, I, I don't hate God. I'm not hostile toward God. Well, that's what it says in verse 7. It says, because the mindset on the flesh is what? Hostile toward God. Paul uses that same word hostile to describe a deed of the flesh in Galatians 5.20. And he also describes a perpetual hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. You're not going to get along with God if you're in the flesh. It's the opposite of love, that word hostile. So unbelievers do not love God. Oh, they may say they do, but they don't. They hate him. He's their enemy. And they're deceived into thinking, well, wait, no, that's, that's not, you know, I know a lot of unbelievers, but I wouldn't say they all hate God. They don't have anything against God. But the Bible draws this line very clear, beloved. Either you are a God lover because he has saved you from your sins, or you are a God hater because you do not want him to rule over your life. It's only those two camps. It can't be both. Unbelievers may be religious, but a lot of times it's a religion that they create or they like. They pick and choose the kind of God that suits their preferences. They, t- they come to God on their own terms, by their own good works, and they use him for their own selfish purposes. We need to be clear. We need to understand how God saves us. It's not by what we do. It's by his grace. So since there are only two groups of people with two different destinies, make sure that you're according to what? The spirit and not according to the flesh. Because the mind that's set on the flesh is spiritually dead. And it's headed toward eternal death because it's God's enemy. There's no neutrality there. We need to be reminded of that. Spurgeon illustrates this by supposing that someone wrote you a letter. And you paid no attention to it. Someone asked, well, when did that letter come? Oh, it came last Monday. Have you read it? Oh, no. I don't bother to read his letters. You've had a good many of them there. 
Oh, yeah, hundreds of them. Well, what have you done with them? Well, I haven't done anything with them. I leave them alone and don't bother to read them. When you did read one of his letters, what was it about? Well, it was about wishing to be at peace with me and describing to do good to me and spoke of me of being in great, grave danger and said that he would help me and of my being poor and he offered to make me rich. He talked like that in one of his letters and you never read any more of his letters? You must hate that person very much. (laughs) See, indifference toward this kind and merciful God is hate. It's not just indifference. Unbelievers often think that a holy God is too strict or too foreboding. They prefer a God with maybe a little more cuddle factor, a little more user-friendly. They think that God's justice is, you know, the way he judges sinners, that's just way too severe. And some of them even protest, sure, you know, I've got my own faults. But God shouldn't judge me for being imperfect. That's not fair. They think that God's truth is too rigid. It's too inflexible. They wish he would be more tolerant. Kind of like they are. They say things like, well, I believe as long as a person is sincere and does his best... He'll go to heaven. That's the gospel of someone like Joe Olstein. As long as you're sincere. Well, Larry, you know, I know Mormons, you know, they're sincere. I'm sure God takes that. And they even think that God's mercy through the cross is offensive. Because it implies that they cannot save themselves. See, all this puts the person who sets his mind on the flesh at odds with God. All that. And we always need to be careful before we make an enemy, especially if that enemy is a much stronger and smarter person than you are. But the problem is this. We are all born at enmity with God. You would think that everyone who would, would be trying to scramble to figure out how to become God's friend and end all this hostility between us and God. But instead, unbelievers brazenly defy God and disobey his law. They boastfully oppose God's truth as revealed in his word. And they basically say, well, you know, I know more about it than, than God does. What do they do? They remake God in their own image, a God that they can like. I've even heard professing Christians say things like, well, my God isn't a God of judgment. He's a God of love. Really? I got news for you, pal. Your God is not the God of the Bible. 
Because our God is a God of judgment. Just as much as he is a God of love. And so this is the contrast that we're facing. Those who set their minds on the spirit, believers in Christ, are not God-haters, but are God-lovers. They seek to please God. We seek to love God with, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Now, yeah, we fail, but we, we still, that's our desire. We want to do that. We love our Savior. We understand that he left glory, the glory of heaven, to suffer and to die here on a cross in our place. We don't want to do anything to hinder that fellowship that we have, that we enjoy because of his grace. And so Paul shows here in Romans 8 that the mindset on the flesh is not spiritually neutral. It's separated from God. And it's actively opposed to him as his enemy. Well, the second thing here this morning that I want to share with you is the mind set on the flesh does not submit to God. Look at verse 7. Romans 8. Not only is it hostile to God, but it says, For it does not submit to God's law. It does not submit to God's law. What does God's law do for us? God's law reveals who he is. God's law reveals to us how he commands us to live. That's what God's law does for us. Now, obviously, we're not living under the law of Moses. We're under the law of Christ. But we are subject, the Bible says, to two great commandments. To love God with our entire being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus kind of summarized his law in those two commands. And when you look through the New Testament, you see over and over again specific commands about how those who are in Christ should live. In relationship to God and in relationship to one another. But what about the unbelieving mind? It says there the unbelieving mind does not subject itself to God's word. It says, no thanks, I don't want to hear it. I'm going to make up my own word. I'm going to make up my own God. Your God is too rigid. Your God is too judgmental. The unbelieving mind is basically saying, I love myself and its will first and foremost. Everything else plays second fiddle. A lot of times unbelievers will say things, they say they they do not believe because of the intellectual reasons, they say. If they give me, just give me enough proof to believe and I'll believe. Or if God would speak to me from heaven, well, then I'd believe. Or if God would do a miracle, well, then I'll believe. But God has given us sufficient evidence, beloved, through his creation. That's what Romans 1 is all about. We've gone through that. And then you have the biblical witness of Christ. But what do unbelievers do? Unbelievers, it says in Romans 1, they suppress the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. 
They suppress it. It's more than just putting fingers in their ears and saying, la, 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 I'm not hearing. They want to actually, they, they want to suppress you from speaking the truth. That's the world in which we live today. Because the truth brings light to their sin in their fallen state before a holy God, and they don't like that. It's kind of like the guy at work that's always trying to critique everything to make it better and, you know, working hard. And most of the coworkers, they don't like a guy like that. Why? He makes them look bad. See, when we reveal the truth of God in someone's heart, it makes them look bad. You're not all what you thought you were when it comes to God's word. But they suppress the truth because they don't want to submit to the truth. The root of unbelief is not intellectual. It's moral. They don't want to give God rule over them. They do not want to obey his word. By implied contrast, if you think about it, those whose minds are set on the spirit, what do they do? They do want to submit to the word of God. I remember after becoming a believer, there were certain things that were in my life. And boy, when I read in the Bible, wow, I shouldn't be doing that. God convicted me. I didn't say, eh, I won't read that anymore. I Stay away from that section because I still want to do. No, God's spirit convicted me and I had to confess certain sins and put them behind me. John Calvin describes his own conversion from Catholicism and he says this. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. (laughs) I like that. God brought his mind to a teachable frame. A good test of whether your mind is set on the flesh or on the spirit is simply this. Do you have a teachable heart when it comes to being in submission to God's word? Do you have a teachable heart? Or when you're faced with God's truth, do you say, oh, that, I don't want that. I don't want to be taught about that. See, the test of having a teachable heart comes when you encounter some of the difficult doctrines of Scripture. What are some of the difficult doctrines of Scripture? You say, well, one would be the Trinity. Who here understands the Trinity? Crazy, right? Three, one, okay. I mean, you'll go nuts trying to figure that out. And you've heard, you know, we have air, you know, and water and ice. And you got, you know, you got all these, you know, an egg. And they all break down. They, none of them fully describe the Trinity. At some point, all those illustrations break down. Now, some are better than others. Or the doctrine of hell. That's... Go think about that one for a while. That God would create a place that for all eternity, people will be caused to suffer. Not for 100 years, not for 100,000 years, forever. Because they rejected his offer of the gospel. Because of their own sinful practices. And the wickedness of their heart. 
I mean, we know hell exists. The Bible says so. But when you start thinking about it, why would God do that? I mean, you can, you can once again, stay up all night thinking about that. Think about the doctrine of predestination. The idea that before you were ever even born, God chose you for salvation. That doesn't even make sense in our human mind. Well, how did he choose? If I wasn't there, then how? Right? I mean, you, you, can't, you, can, you can sit around all day and discuss that. There are people that have written volumes and volumes on that. And in the end, they go, well, there's some things we just have to believe by faith. <laughs> and these are brilliant people. Or things like handling trials. Stop and think about that. I mean, we all know that God allows trials in our lives to help us grow in our faith. But boy, wouldn't it be easier if we just had any trials? I mean, think about it. After you became a Christian, you had no more trials. That would be a good kind of advertisement for the gospel. Look at me. I don't have any problems in my life because I came to Christ. Would you like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? Why does God allow those trials to persist in our life? I mean, we know intellectually what the Word of God says. I mean, if I was God, I would just save you and take you home. It would be so much easier. But he leaves us here in this sin-stained world to deal with sin every day. Do you fight God regarding these truths, these doctrines, or do you just submit to them? There comes a point in time in your Christian walk where you have to say, you know what? God is God. I'm not. And he knows a lot better than I do. And I just have to, I don't have to understand all this stuff. But I do have to say, I'm going to submit to it. And when you start speaking of different doctrines, that leads us to the difficult truth, which many who profess to know Christ do not Except the third thing, the mind set on the flesh cannot submit to God or please him. See, Paul does not stop by saying that those who are in the flesh do not submit to God's law. He doesn't just stop there. He goes further. And he, he, go, he goes further by saying that they are not even able to do so. In verse 8, it says, those who are in the flesh, what's it say? Cannot what? Cannot please God. That word cannot is a word of inability. It goes all the way back to the matter of a sinner's fallen nature in Adam that we covered chapters ago. And that fallen nature in Adam is incapable of obeying God or pleasing him. And it's unfortunate that a lot of folks in the church don't understand that. I would say even some Christians don't understand that. They think somehow that as a Christian, the more good they do, the louder God's going to go, yay, in heaven. One commentator says, just as a pig is free to act in line with its pig nature but not in line with a human nature, so fallen sinners are free to act in line with the flesh, but not in line with the Holy Spirit, whom they do not possess. There's a lot of people within churches today that talk about the free will. 
Don't we have a free will? And they argue, basically, they say God has given all people the ability to choose salvation. I mean, we can't go into all the arguments against that doctrine. But it's important to understand that, you know what? The Bible says that our will is captive outside of Christ. It's captive by what? Sin. We're slaves to sin. A slave doesn't sound like somebody who has a free will. Paul also teaches that human inability to respond to the gospel apart from God's gracious enabling power is all over his writings. It's not just you grabbing a Bible and as an unbeliever trying to figure this thing out and then eventually, oh, I got it. Now I, now I want to become it. It's not going to happen that way. That's not how it happens. I was in a church one time. There was a believer. I believe he was a believer. But he went on this trail for about a year of testing all these world religions, Mormons, Jehovah, everything. And he finally came full circle. And I mean, the church was really praying for this guy. They thought, man, he left the faith. He said, I just want to make sure. What, what if one of these other ones is right? I thought, man. And eventually he made his way all the way back to Christ. Where he started and he realized, well, this is the truth. And he had an incredible ministry of apologetics because he experienced all these other religions. I don't encourage you to do that because it's probably not very wise. But for him, it worked. We have to remind ourselves that we, we don't just respond to the gospel. It's God who saves us. Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear about this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Look at what he says here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking to Christians. So he said, this was your your state before you came to Christ. You were dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God. Credible, credible word. But God, being rich in mercy... Withholding something that we deserve to get, his judgment, he's withholding it. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Not only that, but you've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. There it is again, through faith. It's not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I mean, isn't that a glorious thing that God saved you when you were dead in sin? He didn't say, you know what, you clean yourself up a little bit and I'll come back and visit, take a shower, you know, get some of the sins out of your life. And then that's how the world thinks. The world thinks, you know, I'd come to church, but, you know, I got to get my act together first. What does that mean? You know, how how are you going to get your act together enough to stand before a holy God? You're never going to do that. The only way you can do that is trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. And Paul says, we already read those verses about the natural man not understanding the things of the Spirit, which includes the message of the cross, by the way. You know, you go out on the streets and you start preaching the gospel. What do they do? They mock you. People who don't know Christ, they make fun of you. Why do they do that? They're not just mean people. It's because they they don't understand the truth. They're blinded to the truth of the gospel. Blind people cannot choose to see. Have you ever met a blind person that said, yeah, one day I just thought, you know what? I want to see. And I'll open my eyes. Now I can see. It doesn't work that way. It's the same way with blind spiritually. People who are blind spiritually, they can't just choose one day to, oh, now I'm going to see everything. Paul says that the natural man cannot understand the things of the spirit. Jesus also taught that no one can come to him except what? The Father grants it and draws him. In John chapter 8, verse 43, he, he asked these skeptical Jewish leaders who were there. He says, why do you not understand what I am saying? That's what he asked the religious folks in his day. This is our Lord. And then he answered his own question. He said, first of all, it is because you cannot hear my word. <laughs> you cannot hear my word. Obviously, they could hear what he was saying, but they lacked the spiritual ability to hear with obedience, to hear with understanding. And since those who are in the flesh cannot please God, and faith pleases God, sinners cannot believe in Jesus Christ for salvation by their own free will apart from God's specific saving grace. The fallen human will is not free, it's in bondage to sin. And so it means this, the order of salvation, basically regeneration precedes faith, God must impart life to dead sinners so that they can believe the gospel. So important that we understand that. Sometimes we hold unbelievers to a certain level of other Christians. We can't do that. Why are they acting that way? Because they're unbelievers. They're acting just the way they are. They're acting the way we acted before we became Christians, before we put our faith, our trust in Christ. We have to be reminded that the gospel is not something we have to tamper with when we're sharing it. It's not something that we have to change. We just take it and we bring it to the table. But we have to understand that these people have unbelieving minds. And it's only God who can step in and transform their mind, transform their heart, 
During the 1840s, at a time of revival in Savannah, Georgia, a young man complained to Pastor B.M. Palmer. He said this, You preachers are the most contradictory men in the world. You say and you unsay just as it pleases you without the least pretense to consistency. Why you said in your sermon that sinners were perfectly helpless in themselves, utterly unable to repent or believe, and then turn around and said that they would all be damned if they did not. Well, Pastor Palmer decided that it would be best to reply to this offhand, indifferent remark. He says, well, my dear friend, there is no use in our quarreling over this matter. Either you can or you cannot. If you can, all I have to say is that I hope you will just go and do it. Pastor Palmer did not raise his eyes from his writing, which he continued to do as he, as he spoke. So he did not know what effect his words had until after a moment's silence and he heard a choking cry along with these words. I have been trying my best for three whole days and cannot. Ah, Pastor Palmer responded. That puts a different face on it. We will go then and tell the difficulty straight to God. And then he reports, we knelt down and I prayed as though this was the first time in human history that this trouble had ever arisen. That here was a soul in the most desperate extremity which must believe or perish and hopelessly unable to do it itself. Consequently, it was just the case for divine intervention and pleading most earnestly for the fulfillment of the divine promise. Upon rising, I offered not one single word of comfort or advice, so I left my friend in his powerlessness in the hands of God as our only helper. In a short time, he came through the struggle rejoicing in the hope of eternal life. See, sometimes it's good to leave people in that point in their life. Don't feel you have to fix it. Don't feel you have to pray some prayer with them and then give them false assurance. Let God do the work. Because the unbelieving mind is spiritually dead. It's hostile toward God. It cannot and will not submit to God unless God changes it. And so salvation is not a joint project between God and sinners. The Bible says very clearly over and over, beloved, that salvation is of the Lord. And since salvation is completely God's doing, he gets all the glory. We need to think about that when we share the gospel. We also have to think about that, how that pertains to our own lives. Jonathan Edwards, and I'll close with this. He wrote a kind of a little uh, a treatise on religious affections. And he examines the signs of God's gracious work in a person. And he subheads the first part of his essay, essay, and it said this, Great effects on the body are no sign 
of salvation. Fluency and fervor are no sign of salvation. That they are excited by us is no sign of salvation. That they come with texts of scripture is no sign of salvation. That they have religious affections of many kinds are no sign. That they have joys following in certain order are no sign. Much time and zeal and duty are no sign. Much expression of praise is no sign. Great confidence is no certain sign. Affecting relations are no sign. And Edwards concludes, he says, he was convinced, no doubt rightly, that none of these, as powerful or moving as they may have been, is in itself proof that a person is being acted upon by God rather than by mere emotion of the moment. What is a sure sign then? The answer boils down to whether that person has his or her mind set on the spirit of God or the spirit of the flesh. I want to ask you this morning, are you born again? Do you have a new nature? Have you passed out of death into life? Only God can do that for you. I pray that he would quicken your heart to believe this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that the unbelieving mind is one that we need to understand because we live in an unbelieving world. Not only that, but that's where we all came from. We were all there at one point in time. And now that as believers, we have to ask ourselves, are we pursuing our relationship with you with all our strength? Do we understand our salvation? Do we understand that we're a new creature in Christ? Have we trusted that God has been gracious to us, opening our eyes for a need of salvation? Do I count God as my friend? Do I subject myself to God's word and God's word alone? Do I seek to please God with my thoughts and my words and my deeds? Is my mind set on the spirit and not on the flesh? If you're here this morning and you know for sure your mind is set on the flesh, I pray that you would ask God for mercy, that you would ask God for grace, that you would cry out to him as the man in the New Testament, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save my heart, save my soul. Help me even in my unbelief, Lord. That's a prayer that God will answer if it's prayed from a sincere, broken heart. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that you would just bless our time of fellowship over in the fellowship hall afterwards. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a quick song.